Father, I'm so thankful that when we come together, your Holy Spirit is present with us. I pray that this morning that you will teach us from your word. There's some truths that every person here needs to hear from you. And so I pray that we would pay attention to what you're saying to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as of yesterday at 12.49 p.m., there were 190.5 million COVID cases worldwide. And out of those 190.5 million cases, there have been about 4.1 million COVID deaths during the last 16 to 18 months. And so with the COVID outbreak comes a million questions that you and I struggle with. You know, questions like mask or no mask? Uh, what is the science? Can you trust the science? Vaccines or no vaccines? Who do you believe? Who do you listen to? So there's lots of questions out there as you, as you think about this pandemic that has come upon our nation. And there's a lot of different voices giving a lot of different opinions, giving a lot of it different interpretations as to what's going on. Um, some of those voices are optimistic and saying, hey, this is not going to last very long, so just be brave, stick in there, hang tough. And then there are voices that are very pessimistic saying, oh, this is the worst thing that has ever happened and it's not going to get any better. This is the end of life as we know it. And then you have some that uh, are going to be alarmists who are going to see conspiracies on the loose everywhere and enemies behind every tree. And then you've got some who are just scoffers who question anything and everything you hear in the media and, and they're just saying, well, what's the use? Who cares about any of it? Lots of different ap approaches and, and, and opinions. And the truth of the matter is that in every great calamity that comes, there's going to be a variety of different opinions, a variety of different voices that are going to tell you what to think, what to believe, what to, what to hold on to. Uh, whether it's a global crisis, a national crisis, maybe it's a family crisis, or maybe it's a personal crisis. There's a lot of different opinion out there, a lot of different ideas as to what you should do or how you should respond or, or whatever. But there is, however, one voice one opinion <clears throat> that maybe we don't listen to enough. Maybe there's a question that we haven't asked even in this pandemic. <clears throat> and that is simply this. The question, what is God saying to us? What is God saying to us through this pandemic? Today, as we're in the book of Joel, uh, we're going to... Uh, we're going to see a people in Judah and Jerusalem who are going through a set of critical events, a, a real crisis in the nation. And Joel, the, the, the prophecies that he gave are written into the book of Joel to help those people know what God was saying to them through those series of events that, that we're talking about. So if you have your Bibles, 
Those of you at home here in the, in the worship center, turn to Joel 1, verse 8. If you have the, the notes, uh, these verses are in there as well. But let's start uh, at Joel chapter 1 and verse 1. Joel 1, 1. God's word says this, The Lord gave this message to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, very little is known about Joel, who he is or, or anything. We know he's, who his father was. That's about it. But apparently he was a prophet of Jerusalem. His name means Yahweh is God. The Lord is God. That's what his name means. And there's no reference at all to the date in which he's writing here. Um, my study has come to the conclusion that Joel probably was a late 8th century prophet and most likely prophesied during about a 30-year period uh, when King Josiah was on the throne of Judah. Uh, that would have been during the period when Jehadiah, the, the high priest, was kind of an advisor to the king. One of the things that happened when Jehadiah died King Josiah kind of went off the deep end and, and fell into all sorts of idolatry and sin. But it was probably during those, those 30 years when Jerusalem was kind of being held uh, under, the, under the sway of, of the Lord God Almighty. I believe that's when Joel is prophesying. And uh, this probably would be like 835 to 800 B.C., somewhere right in there. And I, I say that. But on it, be honest with you, the Bible scholars are very divided as to the date of the, of the prophet Joel. I, I've seen some that even said, no, he prophesied during the period of the exile or after the exile. And so it, it's all over the map. But the fact of the matter is the dating of the book really doesn't impact the message of the book. Okay? So the theme of this book is simply this. It's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And I've mentioned, we talked about that this summer already, the day of the Lord. It's a phrase that's used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to identify events that are going to happen at the end of history. Uh, other terms that are used in Scripture to talk about the day of the Lord are the day or that day, the day of visitation, the day of wrath, the great day of the Lord God Almighty. So these phrases can point to a singular event, or they could, they could be referring to a span of time when God personally intervenes in history, rather either directly or indirectly, but he's intervening in history to accomplish something specific in his plan for this world. And so what we see in Joel is this, in, this, in the sense of the day of the Lord that it is, it, you know, it's there's a sense of imminence, there's a sense of nearness, there's a real sense of expectation that something big is going to happen. Now keep in mind also that in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is often spoken of as being both very near, but it's also spoken of something very far in the distant. I mean, some of the Old Testament passages are going to be talking about the day of the Lord as if it's already happened, as if it's a historical event. And then other passages are going to be pointing to uh, divine judgments that are going to happen far in the future. And so the day of the Lord is, is kind of a, it's a term that includes a lot of different things throughout Scripture. Uh, and besides being a time of judgment, the day of the Lord is also going to be a time when God is going to deliver 
his people. It's going to be a time of salvation. <coughs> Excuse me, as God's going to deliver the remnant of Israel, who's going, he's going to fulfill his promise that all of Israel will be saved. He's going to forgive their sins. He's going to restore the people to the land that was promised to, to Abraham. And so uh, the ultimate or the, the final fulfillment of that prophecy concerning the day of the Lord is going to come at the end of history when God with awesome power is going to, to bring judgment on the wicked in the world and he's going to fulfill his promises to his people. In other words, the day of the Lord really refers to a time when God's going to bring punishment and restoration to the whole world. And uh, for those who refuse to repent of their sins and <coughs> excuse me, place their trust in Christ as Savior, it's going to be a day of punishment. It's going to be a day to fear. To be to dread, to, to be afraid of. But to those who, who are, have been forgiven and who've been redeemed through the precious blood of Jesus Christ by placing their faith, their confidence, their trust in Jesus Christ, it's going to be a day of, to anticipate with great hope. So Joel is going to speak of the day of the Lord, and, and he's going to talk about it in three different ways. He's going to talk about it as being immediate, as being imminent, and as being ultimate. So let's jump into that. The very first one of those, and there in your notes, the first blank is the word immediate. He's going to talk in chapter 1 about the immediate day of the Lord. Uh, and that's chapter 1, verses 2 through 20. Now what's happening here is that there is a terrible plague of locusts that have invaded the land of Judah. And... Uh, Joel is interpreting this plague of locusts as the hand of the Lord. This is an act of God. It's a manifestation of the day of the Lord. Um, this locust plague is, is going to be used by Joel to speak to the generations and really to point to the end of the age to come. And so he begins his message by pointing out that here's this plague of locusts and they're devastating the land. And so in essence, what he's saying to them is, you know, what you have seen in the locusts is the day of the Lord that you've often heard the prophets foretell. And it begins not with the Gentiles, the non-Jews, but it begins with us, God's chosen people. Um, and, and he goes on and he says that we need to realize that we are not exempt from God's judgment and we must repent. That's the essence of the message that... that um, Joel is going to give. And so he begins his book by calling on five groups of people to repent, to lament, to turn back to God, to cry out to God for forgiveness and, and uh, for, for him to, to, to wash away their sins. Joel uh, 1 verse 2, hear this, you leaders of the people, listen, all who live in the land, in all your history has anything like this happened before. Now, the word leader here in the New Living Translation is a Hebrew word that can mean elder. And the, the translators of the New Living Translation are taking that word elder in the sense of one who is a leader of, of in Israel. We have elders in our church that are our leaders. Other translations, however, take this Hebrew word to mean elderly people who are older, like grandparents and great-grandparents. And the challenge is that they, in turn, are to tell others in their families, that in generations to come, about this 
devastation and how it's an act of God's judgment on them. And so if you look at verse 3, tell your children about it for years to come and let your children tell their children. Pass the story down from generation to generation. After the cutting locusts finished eating the crops, the swarming locusts took what was left. After them came the hopping locusts and then the stripping locusts too. Maybe there were Mormon crickets. I don't know. Who knows? This was a terrible plague of locusts, folks, and it stripped the land of all vegetation, just destroyed all the crops of the people. And I don't think that Joel is talking about four different species of locusts here as much as he's talking about wave after wave after wave of these locusts come through the, the land and just destroy everything that can be found. And so this is a call uh, to cry out in repentance to God. And, and it's going to continue in verses 4 through 14 as Joel calls on drunkards to cry out to the Lord. He calls on priests, temple workers. He calls on farmers. He calls on the just the general uh, citizens of the nation to cry out to God. And one thing that stands out in these verses as you look at them is you see that not only was there a locust infestation or invasion that was taking place, but it's also accompanied by drought um, that withered the grapevines and the fig trees and the pomegranate trees and the palm trees and the, and the apple trees. And not only that, but with this drought, Joel says, the people's joy has dried up. So it was a, it was a devastating drought. We know something about drought in our, in our day and time. So then when you get down to verse 15 through 20 there in chapter 1, we read out, we read of Joel's own cry out to the Lord, his cry of lament uh, against this terrible plague and the destruction that's happening to his, to his land uh, of Judah. This section, in, in beginning in verse 15, is the first mention in Joel of the day of the Lord. And, and Joel is speaking of it in future tense, as if it's to come. And yet the reality is that what the nation was experiencing um, with the locusts and the drought, and, and folks, there's even a hint of a wildfire that's going through Israel, uh, through Judah as well. What they were experiencing was an immediate fulfillment of the day of the Lord. So it was an immediate thing that was happening. It was happening right now around him. Listen to these words beginning in, in verse 15. The day of the Lord is near, the day when destruction comes from the Almighty. How terrible that day will be. Our food disappears before our very eyes. No joyful celebrations are held in the house of our God. The seeds die in the parched ground and the, grains, uh, the grain crops fail. The barns stand empty and granaries are abandoned. How the animals moan with hunger. The herds of cattle wander about confused because they have no pasture. The flocks of sheep and goats bleat in misery. Lord, help us. The fire has consumed the wilderness pastures and flames have burned up all the trees. Even the wild animals cry out to you because the streams have dried up and the fires have consumed the wilderness pastures. Now, let me chase a rabbit for, for just a second here. Here is Judah, and they are in the midst of a natural disaster. I mean, you've got locusts, you've got drought, you've probably got wildfires. And notice, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 15, 
He says, the day when destruction comes from the Almighty. Did you catch that? He is saying that this has come from the hand of God. Really raises the question, how do we react to natural disasters as followers of Christ? I mean, how do we explain them? If we worship God that we believe is sovereign, that we believe is in control, how do we, re how do we relate to natural disasters? I mean, think about it. The atheist would plainly state, this is proof that there is no God. Because look at all this stuff that's happening and doesn't seem to have any control over it at all. A person who is an agnostic would say, well, um, it proves that God either will not interfere in the world or he cannot interfere in the world. And, and think about it. If, if God will not put an end to suffering, then he's pretty cruel, isn't he? And if he cannot put an end to suffering, then he's pretty weak. And it, so in either case, the atheist, the agnostic would say that either there is no God or he is nothing like the God of love that you and I are, are to worship. So that's one way in which you can, can react to natural disasters. Another viewpoint is that God has put natural laws in place. And then basically he's just taking his hands off of the controls and he's allowing those natural laws to work in our sinful fallen world. I mean, because of our sin, the world is broken and there are consequences of illness and, and uh, disease and disasters and weather and buildings that collapse and, and, and so forth. That's another way in which you kind of try to deal with natural disasters and so forth. Another thought is, no, this is spiritual warfare. The forces of God are battling the forces of Satan and any kind of natural disaster that occurs or a building collapsing in Florida, whatever, that's simply the work of Satan and he's out to destroy God's world and God's work and God's people. Let me give you a better explanation, I think, that, that really fits the context of much of the Bible and, and especially this first chapter of Joel. The fact of the matter is that the Bible teaches that God is intimately involved in our world. Um, in every aspect of our world. And, and so for Joel, he sees these locusts as agents of God's wrath, bringing judgment on Judah. Uh, he doesn't see it as an accident. Oh, these things just showed up and we don't know why. Nor does he see it as the work of Satan. He sees this as an act of God bringing chastisement to his people. So the fact of the matter is, folks, natural laws do work in our world. I, we're not, we're not going to take that away from it. And there are events that do happen as the result of natural laws. I mean, folks, earthquakes happen because of tectonic plates shifting. That's just a part of, of the way in which our world is created. But that doesn't take away from the fact that God is still sovereign. That God is still in control. Uh, let, me, let me try to explain a little bit more by looking at two different statements from Jesus in the Gospels. Um, first, in Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, uh, Jesus mentions an event that happened in the temple area when Pilate uh, ordered the slaughter of a group of Galileans. 
and they were killed in the temple there. And, and Jesus asked the question of those people who, were, who he was teaching. He asked, were these Galileans who, quote, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices, end quote, were they worse sinners than all the rest of the, the Galileans uh, of that day and time? Um, and then he goes on and he mentions another disaster by asking about an incident that all the people who were listening would have known about when uh, the accident of the Tower of Siloam, when some people were inside this tower and it collapsed and it killed all the people who were within that building. And, and he asked the question, were they worse sinners than all the rest? Well, Jesus' answer to his own question is really surprising. He says this, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then look at John chapter uh, 9, verse 2 and 3. Here's Jesus, and he's asked the question about a man who's been born blind. And, and the disciples ask him, he said, well, who sinned? Was it this man's fault? Or was it his parents' sin that brought about this blindness on him from birth? Jesus responded, and he said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So look at what Jesus is saying here. In the first case, he is attributing the calamity to judgment on sin. But in the other case, in John's gospel, he's not saying it's, it's a result of sin. But what's remarkable is that in neither of those cases does Jesus shrink from ascribing those events to God that those were acts of God, that God was involved in those things. You see, <clears throat> for Jesus, the events of the death of the Galileans at the hands of, the, of Pilate and, and the falling of the Tower of Siloam, he treated those as divine acts of punishment. But he also made the point to his audience, folks, you are in dire danger of God's judgment as well. Um, in other words, what, what Jesus is doing, he's treating that Galilean and that, that Tower of Simone, uh, Salome's tragedy as tokens of judgment to come. And he might very well have been foreshadowing the, the coming destruction of Jerusalem when the walls of the city and the, 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 the temple would fall and, and the Romans would shed blood just like Pilate did uh, of the Jewish people and, and warning them of judgment to come. Jesus is saying these things can be a warning sign to you. And as you think about it, Jesus' method here and his message are not unlike that of Joel here in, the, in this first chapter. See, the, the Old Testament prophet saw the locust plague both as an act of judgment from God and as a warning of further judgment to come. So here's a truth for us as well. I mean, think about it. This pandemic, hurricanes... Uh, collapsing buildings, wildfires, and, and on and on we could go, they should always lead us to a spirit of repentance. Now, I'm not saying, and please hear me here, I'm not saying that every catastrophe that comes along is an act of judgment or an act of punishment from God for sin. Uh, because uh, Jesus' words about the man born blind clearly show that that's not the case. But again... Even in that story, God is in control of the events. And so the blindness of the man was not an accident. 
but was a part of God's plan that he might receive glory through it. So <clears throat> let me kind of stop chasing this rabbit by simply saying this. Our response to calamity, therefore, is both to fear God, make sure we're right with God, and to trust Him, to lean on Him. And, you know, each of us need to recognize that whatever happens, all of us deserve even worse than what happens, okay, because of the sin in our lives. And uh, we must repent daily and we must confess our shortcomings. But on the other hand, when tragedy does strike us, we mustn't just assume that God is pursuing us for some kind of sin in our life. Don't go there. Okay? That's where Job's three friends went. All this is happening because you've sinned. Well, God later proved, that, no, that's not the case. So don't just automatically assume when bad things happen to you, it's because there's sin in your life. Don't, don't go there at all. Because God is sovereign. And he's going to work everything out for his glory and for our good. And so if we're to follow the example of Joel in the hardships that come, in the disasters that, that fall, we need to look for the hand of God. In other words, what is God saying through this, pan, uh, this pandemic? Fear me and trust in me. I am God. So now let's move to chapter 2. And chapter 2 slightly shifts gears. Chapter 1 was the immediate day of the Lord. Chapter 2 is the imminent day of the Lord. It's about to occur. It's coming. It's approaching. It's, it's soon to happen. And what we're going to find in chapter 2 is that <clears throat> the scene is going to shift from this locust invasion, and now it's going to become the invasion of, an, of a formidable army that's going to invade uh, the land of promise. And... Uh, temporarily lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. <clears throat> Most scholars think he's talking about the, the invasion that occurred in 701 B.C. when uh, the Assyrian army under Sennacherib came and, uh, and, you know, conquered most of the land and laid siege briefly to Jerusalem. And uh, Jerusalem was miraculously delivered. That's another story for another time. If you want to read this afternoon, check out 2 Kings 18 and 19, and that'll, that'll give you that story. But here in chapter 2, Joel is going to continue to use the imagery of the locust invasion to portray the invasion of this army that's coming against the people. So in, in chapter 2 and verse 1, Sound the alarm in Jerusalem. Raise the battle cry on my holy mountain. Let everybody tremble in fear because the day of the Lord is upon us. So here's this verse, and it's sounding the alarm of a, the coming invasion of a foreign army that would serve as God's arm of judgment on the nation of Judah and its capital city of Jerusalem. And so with this uh, announcement of the army is the picture that the day of the Lord is imminent, that it's coming at any time. It's the approaching day of the Lord. It's, it's at the door. It's, it's just about to happen. Now, beginning in verse 2, I want you to catch the imagery of locusts that Joel uses as a literary device to describe the invading army. It's a great, great literary device. One of the things the minor prophets were is they were literary geniuses. You know, people like Charles Dickens and so forth have nothing 
on the minor prophets in their literary uh, uh, acumen. So listen to this, Joel chapter 2, beginning of verse 2. It is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of thick clouds and deep blackness. Suddenly, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a great and mighty army appears. Nothing like it has been seen before or will ever be seen again. Fire burns in front of them and flames follow after them. Ahead of them, the land lies as beautiful as the Garden of Eden. Behind them is nothing but desolation. Not one thing escapes. They look like horses. They charge forward like war horses. Look at them as they leap along the mountaintops. Listen uh, to the noise they make, like the rumble of chariots. Do you see the description of the locusts here? Indeed, he's talking about an invading army. <clears throat> he says, the noise that they make, like the rumble of chariots, like the roar of fire sweeping across a field of stubble, or like a mighty army moving into battle. Fear grips all the people. Every face grows pale with terror. The attackers march like warriors and scale city walls like soldiers. Straight forward they march, never breaking rank. They never jostle each other. Each moves in exactly the right position. They break through defenses without missing a step. They swarm over the city and run along its walls. They enter all the houses, climbing like thieves through the windows. The earth quakes as they advance, and the heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars no longer shine. <clears throat> do, you, do you pick up the, the emotional impact that this prophecy must have had on those who were hearing Joel deliver this message? I mean, he's combining sight and he's combining sound in his description. And, and in short, this army is absolutely terrifying as it approaches uh, Judah and Jerusalem. And remember, again, this is the day of the Lord. This is the hand of coming judgment. And, and all of it comes from the hand of a sovereign God who can do whatever he pleases. We're going to see that spelled out in verse 11 where it says, The Lord is at the head of the column. He leads them with a shout. This is his mighty army, and they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is awesome is an awesome, terrible thing. Who can possibly survive? In other words, that day is going to be a great and dreadful day. Everything is turned upside down. Everything familiar is lost. False security uh, collapses. I mean, no one will be able to withstand this day because there's no place left to stand. And this really then leads to the center and the central message of the entire book of Joel. And I mentioned it earlier. What is God saying through the disasters and the troubles that you and I face? And that is that we need to turn to him in repentance and, and surrender to him. That's what he wanted from Judah. That's what he wants from us as well. Look at verse 12. This is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. <clears throat> See, here's a message, folks, of hope right in the middle of all this turmoil. 
God has not finally rejected his people. Uh, he's still ready to heal them and ready to restore them. This is a call to repentance here. Um, it's a call for an attitude of remorse. Uh, it's a call for seeking forgiveness through the, the outward signs of fasting and, and, uh, and weeping. Uh, expressing yourself outwardly for what's going on within your heart. So God, through Joel, <coughs> is calling here, folks, not for some kind of sham or, or, or some kind of show in our turning to God, but what he's calling for is real, genuine repentance. In other words, don't just tear your clothing as some kind of outward show of, of repentance. Instead, he says, tear your hearts. It's simply a way of saying, be brokenhearted over your sinfulness and return to God. Feel the weight of your wickedness. Uh, don't just engage in some kind of flippant repentance. The great reformer John Calvin said this. He says, moderate repentance will not do. And so when we do repent, though, look at verse 13. Look what God does for us. It says, when we repent, God is merciful. He's compassionate. <clears throat> he is slow to anger. He's filled with unfailing love. Uh, <clears throat> the Apostle John put it this way in his first epistle. He says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a message that some of you need to hear this morning. God loves you. And he has made a way for you to be delivered from the penalty of your sin. Christ died in your place. He took your punishment upon himself. And it says, if we confess. And, and confess means to say the same thing as God says about our sin. To say, God, you said this is wrong in my life. That I am going the wrong direction. That I've turned away from you. And you're right, God. You're right. That's what it means to confess, to say the same thing. And it says when we do that, God is filled with mercy toward us. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. What is it we deserve? Scripture says the soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. All of us deserve to be cut off away from God. All of us deserve spiritual death because of the wickedness in our life. God doesn't give us that out of his mercy. But instead, he gives us what we don't deserve, and that's grace. So God gives us mercy. He doesn't give us what we do deserve, but he gives us grace what we don't deserve. That is the gift of eternal life, the gift of a relationship with him, the gift of the promise of, of, of eternal life with him for, for all places. We don't deserve that gift of eternal life, but God gives it to those who place their faith, their trust, their hope in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And so when we repent and we turn to God, God can be counted on, look, to forgive and to restore and look at the restoration there in, Job, uh, in Joel 2, verse 25. The Lord says, I will give you back what you lost to the swarming locust, the hopping locust, the stripping locust, and the cutting locust. 
It was I who sent this great destroying army against you. <coughs> Some of you this morning need to hear those words. As you look back on your life, man, you might describe your life as years that where the sins of the world have just eaten away at your life, destroying it. And you've made wrong choices, wrong decisions. You've had wrong relationships. Um, you've made wrong turns in life. And, and your life lies in shambles behind you. And so words like drought and, and withered, man, they easily attach to your life, to all the years of your life. I want you to know that God is in the restoring business. Listen to what he says. I will give back what you have lost. I'm the one who sent these things to you. Pay attention to what I'm saying to you. Let this be a wake-up call for you. Return to me that I may heal you and I may restore you. You see, the decision that you and I make to follow Jesus Christ is of absolute and utmost importance because as Joel is going to point out in chapter 3, the last part of chapter 2 and, and all of chapter 3, there is coming third, the ultimate day of the Lord. The ultimate day of the Lord. And that's chapter 2, 28 through chapter 3, the, the end of the, of the book. See, there's coming a day when God's going to gather the nations for a final judgment that will lead to eternal blessings for God's people who are living in his presence in the new Jerusalem, but also is coming a time for those who reject God, a time of eternal punishment. So look at, at verse 28 there in chapter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> then after doing all those things, I will pour out my spirit upon all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. In those days I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men and women alike, and I will cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For some on Mount Zion in Jerusalem will escape just as the Lord has said. There will be among the survivors, these will be among the survivors whom the Lord has called. <clears throat> now these words in, in uh, chapter 2 and verse 28 con uh, concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit are very familiar to us. This is the passage that the Apostle Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost to explain the coming of the Holy Spirit on the apostles and how they were, they were speaking in, in uh, multiple languages that they had, never, they had never learned. And he uses that to talk about the fact that in the final days, the day of the Lord, God's Holy Spirit would be poured out. And so for Joel, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a sign of the beginning of the ultimate day of the Lord. This is the final phase you might say, of the day of the Lord. He's looking far off into the distant future. And that day is, is a day when God is going to break into history and bring about the, the, the days of judgment and of restoration. And so the ultimate day of the Lord, I think, begins with the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem's manger. 
It continues with his life, with his death, with his resurrection. It, it continues with the establishment of the church and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it will climax one day with the return of Jesus Christ in his second coming and where it ushers in the reign of God on this earth and the judgment uh, of God against all sinful mankind. So you and I, I think, are living in the, the ultimate day of the Lord right now as we wait Christ's return. And so the next verses are going to paint a very powerful picture of that coming day of judgment. Look at verse uh, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. At the time of those events, says the Lord, when I restore the prosperity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather the armies of the world into the valley of Jehoshaphat. So here is verse 1, and here's the promise of, of salvation. And that's not necessarily some kind of timeline for the future. And then in, in verse 2, here's the, here's the real key to this day of the Lord. It is for some, it will be a day of salvation. For others, it's going to be a day of judgment. And so it's going to include, there it mentioned in the first part of verse 2, it's going to, there's going to be an invitation to the nations to come to war against the forces of the Lord God Almighty. And he talks about the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The, the name Jehoshaphat, uh, there was a king in Israel, in Judah, excuse me, by the name of Jehoshaphat. His name means Yahweh judges, or the Lord God judges, okay? And so they're going to gather in a valley uh, for the final battle, or the final judgment. And, and this Valley of Jehoshaphat is readily identified with the Valley of Jezreel. And uh, we talked about when we studied Hosea that he had a son named Jezreel that was a reminder of the people of God's judgment on the nation. The Valley of Jezreel was a place where many battles in Israel occurred. And what we also know is that the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, is also named in the book of Revelation as the Valley of Armageddon. And, and so one of the things that I found very interesting is that from this point on in the book of Joel, it is going to parallel the last chapters in the book of Revelation, just event for event for event. Kind of fascinating. Because here is God, and he's showing himself to be the guardian of, of his people, of those who are his children. And here is the final battle between the forces of evil and the forces of good. And that's where it's going to take place. And so in verse 12, he said, Let the nations be called to arms. Let them march to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I, the Lord, will sit to pronounce judgment on them. Now here's an interesting thing. Here, once these nations are assembled in this valley, the battle doesn't take place. You know what takes place? God comes and he sits down on the throne and he begins judging the nations. This is not the final battle. This is the final judgment. And so verse 14 continues this picture of the coming judgment in the valley of decision. He says thousands upon thousands. That, that, that means mobs and mobs of people are waiting in the valley of decision. There the day of the Lord will soon arrive. And, and the key thing here is this is not Okay, they've got to decide, am I for God or am I against God? What am I going to do? Am I going to trust Christ? That's not this decision. This is a different decision altogether. The only decision that will be decided is the decision 
of judgment by God himself. That's what this, this, this valley of decision is all about. And with that verdict of judgment, then the day of the Lord is complete. And God's going to gather his people to live with him forever. And again, this is so close in its parallel to the book of Revelation. And so the chapter closes out with these verses, verse 17. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, live in Zion, my holy mountain. Jerusalem will be holy forever, and foreign armies will never conquer her again. In that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. Water will, burst, uh, will fill the, the stream beds of Judah, and a fountain will burst forth from the Lord's temple, watering the arid valleys of Acacias. Verse 20. But Judah will be filled with people forever, and Jerusalem will endure through all generations. I will pardon my people's crimes, which I have not yet pardoned, and I, the Lord, will make my home in Jerusalem with my people. In other words, God's going to be present with his people and dwell among them. See, here is the final assurance that God gives, that they're going to dwell securely in his presence for all of eternity. Isn't that going to be a great day? Yeah. That comes, folks, as a result of the gift of eternal life that God wants to give to us through a saving trust in Jesus Christ alone. So what about you? I mean, what is, what is God saying to you through Joel? What has God said to you through this pandemic? What's God said to you through the troubles and the difficulties that have happened in your life? Are you listening to God? Are you a part of God's people? This is going to be God's people who will be in Jerusalem on that final, on that final day. Are you a part of God's people? Do, do you have the assurance that you're a child of God? John's gospel tells us very plainly, all who received him, meaning Jesus Christ, to those who believe in his name, to them gave he the right to be called the children of God. If you want to be a child of God, it starts by calling on the name of the Lord and saying, please save me. Come in, wash away my sins, take away all the wrong that I've done, and give me a new heart, a fresh heart, a fresh start, that I might know you and I might live for you. And so the question is, have you received him into your life as your Savior, as your Lord? If you haven't, do that today. Do that today. The day of the Lord is coming. It'll be either a day of judgment or a day of salvation. And you know what? The choice is yours as to what that will be for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that those who are listening to the sound of my voice here in this room and those who are watching online would get serious to, to understand what it is that you're saying to them through all the ups and downs, the trials of life. Are you saying, fear me and trust me? I pray that we would always turn to you for explanations you could draw us to yourself and that we would return and that we would repent and let you be the Savior and the Lord of our life. In your name we pray, amen.